The State Department is launching two new fellowship programs. They're meant to bring in a diverse next-generation set of hires into the ranks of its civil service and diplomatic security service. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced the new fellowships at an event celebrating the success of the existing fellowships. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. All right, more fellowships, more diversity. What's going on here, Jory? So Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently announced that the department will launch two new fellowships. One is focused on bringing in the next generation of its civil service, and that will be named after former Secretary of State Colin Powell, the first African-American Secretary of State, also looms large in the Defense Department. And the other fellowship is going to be bringing in the next generation for the Diplomatic Security Service, and that's going to be named after William D. Clark Sr., who was the first diplomatic security member to achieve the rank of the ambassador at the State Department. These are both broadly themed around bringing in a diverse group of new talent, but everyone's welcome to apply. Blinken, at this ceremony honoring anniversaries of the existing fellowships, he said that the current fellowships and the new ones are an effort for the department to break out of this monoculture of being, as the department's fond of saying, pale, male, and Yale. For decades, American diplomats pretty much all looked the same. Many came from the same parts of the country, even the same schools. Just about everyone else, people of different genders, different faiths, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, nations of origin, they were relegated to supporting roles, if they could find a place here at all. Generations of public servants worked diligently, determinedly, to change that. All right, and that's Secretary of State Tony Blinken. And, Jory, what are the department's long-term diversity challenges at this point? Because those days when they didn't let blacks, they didn't let Jews into the department, those that's been a while since that's taken place. Yeah, there have been some efforts, particularly with stepping up the entry-level efforts of who's coming into the department, but the Government Accountability Office for decades now has kind of documented the progress here. The real issue at this point is that diversity filtering up to the State Department's higher ranks. And this is beyond just this being the right thing to do. The department says that they want a workforce that is representative of the U.S. population when they do their diplomatic work overseas. And we also heard from Ambassador Marsha Bernicat, who is the top HR official at the State Department. She has a couple of hats. She's the director general for the Foreign Service. She's also the director of the Bureau of Global Talent Management. She says that these fellowships serve an outsized role in bringing in top talent into the Foreign Service. Diversity in the broadest sense is a critical comparative advantage for the United States on the world stage. Because of our unique history, America is the world. And as we leverage that diversity as an institution, we are better able to understand and work with the world and are more effective at advancing our nation's interests and serving the American people. Again, Marsha Bernicat, and she is, among other hats, director of the Bureau of Global Talent Management at the State Department. We were speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, and you mentioned, of course, these two new fellowship programs are added to programs they've had for a while. How are they going, and are they contributing, the existing programs, to this greater diversity drive? They certainly are. The data shows that the department is bringing on more ethnic minorities and women into its workforce in greater numbers through these fellowships. Just a couple of the statistics here. 
its pain fellowship, which is meant to bring in the next generation of folks into USAID. About 75% of those fellows are racial or ethnic minorities, and 75% are women, and about 65% of the fellows for the Foreign Affairs IT fellowship come from underrepresented backgrounds. And so Blinken says that's progress, but more progress is needed. These numbers represent progress, but we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do to create a department that truly reflects the people that we're here to represent, that's truly as diverse and inclusive as it needs to be. And what else are they doing? Because you mentioned, too, that the fact that people of color and different diverse people may not be making it up to the higher ranks, even though they're coming in through the fellowship. So that would seem to be something they have to do beyond the fellowship programs is to promote that talent. What else is going on to improve this whole diversity question? Well, another big thing that they're doing is slicing and dicing up the workforce data that they have to drill down and understand where these gaps are with the diversity. That's a big priority taken on by the State Department's first Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer, Gina Abercrombie Winstanley. Blinken brought her on pretty early into his tenure, and Blinken says that for the first time ever, the department has this pretty comprehensive, disaggregated data set where they can look and understand where they need to make more progress. And is State Department doing anything on the training front? Yeah. So in a interview that I had with Bernicat recently, she said that for the first time in quite some time, about a decade and a half, the Foreign Service is hiring above its rate of attrition. And what that allows it to do is something that former Secretary of State Colin Powell had envisioned for the department is standing up this training float. So you can always have a dedicated cohort of the Foreign Service in training, upskilling for big things like health, climate, artificial intelligence, and that they're able to do that without sacrificing people who are on the front lines doing the diplomatic mission. Here's Bernicat with more on that. We know in today's world, we're going to have to be more STEM literate, among other things, right? If we're going to talk about health and climate and artificial intelligence, we have to have a better sense of what those issues are all about. So part of our modernization effort is to make sure that we have a workforce that is more conversant, regardless of you know civil or foreign service, or I hasten to add also our locally employed staff who are conversant in, in those issues. That was Ambassador Marsha Bernicat, the Director General of the Foreign Service and the Director of the Bureau of Global Talent Management. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology 
and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, so not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all, and a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.